Normally we go straight into the uh, chanting the verse, the Bible verse, and after that we chant the English, and then we start the class. And sometimes, now I, I know the devotees in Melbourne are special, but sometimes we chant a little mechanically. We sort of see the verse up there, and we just chant the Sanskrit, and it doesn't penetrate very deeply the meaning of the verse. So what I had planned to do, and we will certainly catch it up, was to spend these next three days sharing with you a particular subject from the Srimad uh, Bhagavatam. And I had requested uh, that the verses should be, be uh, altered for these three days, which was already uh, agreed. But somehow there's been a little uh, uh, shift. So what I want to do is tell you a story while the verse is being written, uh, which is an unusual thing to do at the start of a Bhagavatam class, but actually quite fortuitous because it was what I was wanting to do anyway. Now, I would like to uh, tell you the story of somebody who I met in India. Uh, I didn't exactly read them, I uh, observed them. Now, for the next three days, we're going to hear about three crazy beggars. That sounds a bit unusual in the Bhagavatam class. But each one of them, from each one of them, I learned something. And so, ultimately, what I would like to share with you is what I learned. So let me tell you the story while we're waiting for the Bhagavatam verse to be written of the first of these crazy men. Now, I was on a train. This is in the 1990s. So India, as Ramboro knows, was quite different then. It wasn't streamlined. I don't think they even had AC, first class, second class. It was, uh, you would go third class, second class, first class. And everyone traveled second class. It was reserved, you have a reservation, you have a bunk, bed, a top, and a seat. That was most common. So I was traveling like that on a crowded train. And at one point, just to get away from all the people and the noise and the, the bumping, bumping of the train, I went out of the compartment to the area that you may be familiar with, where people get on and off the train. And while I was standing there, I was just kind of trying to relax and get a breath of air. I saw somebody sitting over on the side, on the ground. And clearly somebody sitting on the ground in that area doesn't have a reservation. They don't even have access to the compartment. So that means that that person is actually a beggar. So I was standing there and I saw them sitting there and he didn't seem to pay any attention to me, but I was a little fascinated with him. Now he had he was filthy. You could see he hadn't had a bath in who knows how long. His clothes were full of holes and rips. And he had his hair was all matted and 
and it was oily and dusty, like you sometimes see with village children, and it was sticking out like this and like that, and he was unshaven, and he looked really, really uh, unfortunate. So he was also looking around like this, and looking around like that, in a very kind of suspicious way. So I was standing there watching him, and he didn't see me, because even his looking around seemed to be part of his own world in his head. So he didn't, wasn't really connecting with anything. And when he made sure that in every direction no one was watching him, although I was standing right there watching him, he started, he took his pant legs, they ripped, ragged, old pants, and he started very ceremoniously rolling up his pant leg on one side and looking around to make sure no one was looking. It's like, what's going on? So he gets the pant leg up to his knee and then he rolls it further up to his thigh. And underneath his pants, there was a big, big bandage. I thought, whoa, maybe his leg's going to fall off. And then looking again in every direction so that nobody was watching, he began to very ceremoniously unwrap the bandage. I was like, what's going to happen? So I was standing there watching him as he unwrapped the bandage from his leg. And when he finally got to the end of the bandage, he took out something. He took out some sticks. Ordinary old sticks that you see on the side of the road, you see them anywhere. He took them out, and he took them out with such great care. And he looked at them all. He examined them. And then he started counting them. And looking around to see if anyone was watching. And when he saw that no one was watching, and he counted them and straightened them up and put them nice, he put them back into the bandage on his thigh and he started to wrap them up again. And I was looking at him, thinking, what's he doing? And then I understood that to him, this pile of twigs was his treasure. This was what he had. He didn't have a house. He didn't have any money. He couldn't get into the compartment. And when the, tra the ticket collector would come, he'd get him to get off the train anywhere. He had no destination, no job, no family, no nothing. None of the things that we uh, uh, treasure and consider very important in our lives, he didn't have them. He had a pile of twigs. And he was taking special extra care because he didn't have any pockets. He found a rag and he tied it to his legs so that they could be with him wherever he went, always. And as I started to think about this, I started to think, oh my gosh, here I'm learning a big lesson. Now, when we have the Bhagavatam verse, we can 
we can read that together, but we can keep this in mind. This uh, dirty, disheveled, crazy man, counting his sticks, worth nothing, easy to come by, carefully protected as his wealth. So he was foolish and ignorant and dirty and secretive. But actually, what he was displaying was the idea that something is mine. Something is mine. And because something is mine, I have to take care of it, protect it, maintain it. And possibly, when he got kicked off the train, he could find a few more tweaks that he could stick in there as well, so he could expand on his wealth. So what I understood was that there's nothing that one can do. There's nothing one can do to give up the idea that something in this world is mine. Not even poverty removes that sense. And neither does austerity remove that sense. And neither does distress remove the sense that something's mine. And neither does death remove the feeling that there's something here in this world that definitely belongs to me. So when we, when we read together this verse, we will see that the Bhagavatam is very, uh, what can I call it? Uh, it's very black and white. It's very clear. It's like uh, uh, something that, that's very clearly marked. This is this and that is that. And the problem is, because we live on this side and we're hearing that this is not reality, this is reality. But to us, we live, think, feel, exist in a world where this is reality. Therefore, the Bhagavatam sometimes feels very confronting, even confusing. Because explicitly, over and over and over again, you'll find the same message comes through that this is not reality, this is reality. And therefore we are all of us, to some degree or another, engaged in a struggle. How do I shift from here to there? If even craziness or poverty or austerity cannot make that transition from this is mine to this is not mine, it doesn't belong to me, then I think that we should have lots of questions to ask on this subject. And the Bhagavatam invites that. It invites us to think, well, how am I going to work out such and such and such and such in my life? How am I going to practically apply this knowledge in my situation? And it's very valid and very valuable when we as devotees don't think that I'm a devotee and so this doesn't apply to me. 
Just like when we read Bhagavad Gita, we hear Arjuna's difficulty. And Arjuna asks these questions, and he's saying, I can't fight, and here are the reasons I'm not going to take, take part in this battle. I can't do it because of my family members. I can't destroy my family. I can't fight in this battle because it's sinful. If I do that, I'll go to hell. How can I do that? And we don't even know if it's the right thing to do. So how can I do it? Now I need the Bhagavatam Prabhu also, the, the book. Thank you. So when we can identify as devotees, when we can identify with Arjuna's arguments, instead of thinking that those are silly arguments, those are uh, foolish arguments, I don't think like that. When we can think, I do think like that. In a somewhat purified way, I still think like that. When we think like Arjuna thought, then Krishna can enlighten us. If we think that I don't have this problem, and I'm just learning some philosophy, uh, I've got to learn a few verses here and get proficient in this so I can tell other people how to, how to improve themselves, then we don't become as proficient and we don't get a such reciprocation as we would if we feel ourselves to be just like Arjuna. Now here's our verse. Tell me if I've got the right one. Naitad vastu taya pasye Jishamanam vinasiti Ashakta chittu virame Iha mutra chikirshita Naitad vastu taya pasye Ultimate reality. As yet, one should see. Jishyamana. Being observed by direct experience. Vinasyati is destroyed. Ashakta. Without attachment. Chitta. Whose consciousness, Viramit, one should be detached. Iha, in this world, Amutra, and in one's future life, Chikirshita, from activities performed for material advancement. From Translation, one should never see as absolute reality those material things which obviously will perish. 
with consciousness free from material attachment, one should retire from all activities meant for material progress in this life and the next. Please repeat. One should never see, as ultimate reality, those material things which obviously will perish, with consciousness free from material attachment, one should retire from all activities meant for material progress in this life and the next. Purport, a very short purport. Now, before I read the purport, you can see here how the Bhagavatam is very stern. Yes? Very stern. We listen carefully. I'll read it again. One should never see, never, it's not like one should probably not, one should never see as ultimate reality those material things which obviously will perish. So what's an example of a material thing that will obviously perish? Body. Body. What else? Or material possessions like house. Possessions like house. Everything that I can see. Everything that I can see. The word here is drishyamana. Drishyamana means what I can see. Everything that I can see I should not consider it, never see it as ultimate reality. Because, why? It will be destroyed. With consciousness free from material attachment, now there's a challenge, one should retire from all activities meant for material progress. And that sounds a bit heavy again. <laughs> Free from any material attachment, the Bhagavatam is saying, free from any material attachment, you should retire from all the things that you do that are meant for progress materially in this life and the next. Now, if that doesn't make you feel uncomfortable, nothing <laughs> will. And it's meant to make you feel uncomfortable. That I don't know how I can do that. It's meant to, to bring up questions. If you're listening to the class, usually, unless it's a, a factual, it's a story, and it's just a few verses of a storyline, if philosophy is being spoken, it's meant to bring up questions. It's meant to make you feel a little bit uneasy. Not to torture you and punish you and be severe, but it's meant to make you question a little bit your mindset and the way the world is around you. Here's Prabhupada's, no, this is actually a purport written after Srila Prabhupada's time, but written on the basis of the previous Acharya's comments on this verse. One may doubt how a gentleman can retire from family life and live as a beggar. Now, I told you about a beggar. He was living on the, traveling on the train, no money to buy a fare, no suitcase with all of his goods in it, 
you know, he wasn't going from one place to another to sell something or buy something. He was just sitting there in the dirt, filthy, with his sticks. That was all he had. So we don't want, or do we want, to become a beggar? To retire from family, prosperous life, and live as a beggar, eating meager foodstuffs. I have no idea what that poor man is able to find to eat. The Lord here responds by stating that sumptuous or palatable foods, along with other material objects, such as the body itself, should never be seen as ultimate reality. So there's a point here. The Bhagavatam is not saying that you should see your body and food and everything else as illusion, and you should give it up. Because we can't. So the Bhagavatam is not going to tell you to do something that's impossible. But it's going to realign your thinking, so that you, it opens you to another possible way of viewing the world. Since they are obviously perishable items, one should retire from material programs destined to enhance the quality of one's illusion. Not the quality of one's life, but the quality of one's illusion, both in this life and in the next. So there's this very fine line that one has to read very carefully to find. This is not a fanatical statement of black and white. This is ultimate reality compared to perishable things that the world right now is very, very much absorbed in running after. Now I'd like to go back to my story. Now some of you came a little late. Please come on time tomorrow and the next day. I'll go back just briefly to the story I told whilst we were preparing about a beggar who was sitting on a train who I observed. He was filthy and unwashed in ragged clothes. His hair was dirty and matted and, and ugly and horrible. And he looked really horrible, filthy. And I was watching him because I thought, he just looks so awful. That's actually why I was looking at him. I thought, this poor man, look at him. He looks so horrible, his life. When he started to uh, fold up his pant leg in his dirty old pants that were ripped and torn, he started rolling up his pant leg up to his knee. And I thought, that's interesting, what's he doing? And then he rolled his pant leg right up to his thigh, so you could see his thigh. And there there was a big bandage, a rag, a filthy bandage, tied around his thigh. And I thought, perhaps he's broken his leg or something, or his leg's going to fall off. Uh, so he undid that bandage very, very, very carefully, unwrapping the bandage. And I was, he was unaware of me. He was in his own world. And at a certain point, he unwrapped the bandage right till it was just at the end, and he produced from within the bandage, where are my sticks? Sticks. Oh, Some sticks, more than this, many more than this, a bundle of sticks that he had tied to his thigh. He had no pockets, he had no possessions, he had no money. 
So he had to keep his valuables very carefully hidden in case anyone would steal them. And this is what they were. And he started to look at them very carefully. Then he started counting them. 20, 40, 60, 100. And then after he had counted them very, very carefully, he looked around to make sure no one was going to take them or steal them or anything. He put them back on his thigh and he very, very religiously tied that bandage, dirty rag, around his leg again so that they would be safe. And I was thinking, look at this man. Look what he considers his treasure. And then the question turns around, look at you. What do you consider your treasure? And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> we can talk about something else later. Because I, I also realized that I was carrying with me the things I valued. I had given them value. They were important to me. And no one should touch them either. So the questions. Does anyone have any questions? How do you feel when you hear this? Does it produce any questions about your life? Balaram? You don't have a question. Oh, okay. Balaram doesn't have a question. Does anyone else have a question? Does anything come in your mind from hearing this? Do you want to leave it? Um, you know, the Prophet has mentioned that uh, you give up material activities which will further bind you into illusion. Yes. So sometimes it's very hard to distinguish which material activities are you know, binding us into illusion and for all which are the ones which are really required for... So, so your question is, how do I distinguish between things that are binding me and things that are not? Is that correct? Yes, because in the purport it said not like giving up material activities uh, completely, but material activities yes. which will produce... binding me. So there's a question. How do I distinguish between the ones that are binding me and the ones that are not? Does anyone agree that's a good question? Yes, does anyone else have any other questions? The good so, question. Very good question. So yeah. often those are non-objects, non I think that I need this object so that I can serve Krishna better. Yes. So, but I don't know whether uh, do I need daily that object for service of Krishna or service of Maya. Okay. Very similar question. Very good question. Do I really need this, whatever it is? Or, or do I need it for me? Am I thinking I want it? I want it. Or do I need it for my service? How do I distinguish? Yes, Prabhu. I would say, Adhatobhram Vijasa. He has to inquire about God. With this poverty, stripping condition, he has to think of it. Okay, so then we would say, uh, how do I inquire, in my poverty-stricken condition, how do I inquire, how do I find out knowledge about the Lord? How do I do it? I mean, I know I come to the Bhagavatam class, but my ears are often engaged in thinking and talking about other things from before and after. So not much gets in. How do I do it? I do with the devotee. Try to associate with a devotee. Try to associate with a devotee. You've got answers, not questions. <laughs> <laughs> so I had questions that came to me when I was preparing it, and they were very similar questions. How do I do this? How do I apply this? 
Or, well, how do I protect my children? I mean, are my children perishable? <laughs> what am I supposed to do? How do we give them security as well as protection? As they have to also go out into the world, they're here. How do I take care of them? And how, and I think everyone could identify with this one, how do I become more advanced? Is that a good question? Yes, I think so. So the urgency for answers is what pushes us forward. The more urgent we feel, when we can create even for ourselves not a neurotic fear, which sometimes occurs and that's un un unavoidable at times, but we don't want to create, create fear, but we want to create urgency. That I'm, I'm not going to be here in this world for very long, and I, I, don't, I don't want to end up at the end having not done enough, so that I feel like, yes, I'm ready, I'm prepared. Because the end is our final test. So I don't want to be in school, playing around, mucking around, um, not studying, uh, having a good time, but then when the examination comes, I'm, I'm underprepared and I fail. These, I think, are very, very important questions. And this is where the bubble time actually comes in, and also, of course, our great learned scholar over here <laughs> has, has uh, all the answers for us that we need. But we want those answers to be kind of ours, not just theoretical, not just philosophy that we can talk to people about, but they need to become our way of thinking. They need to integrate into our concepts of the reality of the world. And we need to be challenging the things we're seeing and doing with reference to these points. So there's a story in the Bhagavatam about a king who had no son. And because he had no son, he couldn't find any happiness in anything else. Because a king without a son is like useless. Because that means that when he passes away, everything he's worked hard to create, to maintain, to protect, is all just going to go anywhere. Because there's nobody to, no succession, nobody to hand it to. So his life becomes very empty. And he was thinking and thinking and thinking only of the thing he didn't have, because it was an important thing. And he made so many arrangements, because he was a king, and this was Vedic times, he married so many queens, because in the Vedic times, the king would send his sword, if there was some beautiful princess, or there was some beautiful woman, he would send his sword to the house, and that was as good as a marriage. So he had tried and tried and tried to get a son somehow, and when one sage came to visit him, he saw him from his face all the anxiety that he was undergoing and asked him what was, what was his problem. And he told him, and he said, I can get you a son. I know how, I know mantras. I have the power to give you a son. Would you like a son? And he said, oh, like this is my best day of my life. Yes. And then when he, the sage, this sage gave him the 
mantra he said to him, also he said, this son, call him Harsha Sukha. He will bring you incredible happiness and he will bring you the deepest suffering that you could ever imagine. And the, the, the king thought, oh, <laughs> that's not a very good blessing. But he was so eager that he went ahead and he had a baby boy and the baby was beautiful and he just put all of his time with the baby, forgot about all those queens who hadn't had any children and he just was enjoying his life so much. And all those queens who had no children, how did they feel? They started to become very envious of the one queen that had satisfied the king. And because they saw how much his attitude had changed towards them, they decided to get rid of that child. Because if the child wasn't there, then the king would be more liberal with them. And they made an arrangement and they poisoned that little boy. Mm -hmm. When the kings, when the queen came to wake up her son, and she found that he had his eyes were turned upwards because he had gone, she became absolutely hysterical, crying and crying and crying. And she had, the king heard all of this screaming and crying, and he came running to the spot. And when he saw that his son had died, he fainted. And he rolled on the ground. He was in such deep distress. He cried out. His, the queen was crying out in a mad way, oh, to, the, to, to destiny. Why have you taken my son? His son can't die like this. You've got to bring him back. Bring him back. Bring him back. And the king was just moaning and groaning. And then those sages, two sages came back, and one of them was Narada Muni. And they came back in disguise. And the king was just so bereaved. And they came and they said to the king, why are you crying so much? And the king said, because my son has passed away. And they said, no, he hasn't. Look, he's still there. <laughs> and he said, you don't understand. The soul is gone. The body's there only. And after some discussion about the temporary nature of things, which is what we're interested in hearing about, then Narada said, I can bring your son back. I can bring him back. The king was like, Really? And he said, yes. And then he talked to the baby who was lying there lifeless. And he said, please, sit up, wake up, come back. Your mother and father are crying and feeling so much unhappiness. Please come back. And the little boy opened his eyes. And the king was amazed. And then the little boy sat up. And then Narada said, look, your mother and father are, are waiting to take care of you. And the little boy looked around and he said, Which one are my mother and father? Well, how would you feel if your child fainted and woke up and said to you, or went to sleep at night and woke up the next day and said, Which is my mother and father around here? I don't recognize anybody. And then what happened was the king. The, the, the king was standing there horrified and the little boy 
started to speak about his journey as a soul. He said, I've had so many mothers, so many fathers, I've even been in animal bodies and had animal mothers and animal fathers and plant bodies and plant mothers and plant fathers and this is my, my mother and father, I've had so many. So Prabhupada says, this time, the living entity was supposed to have been the son of King Chitraketu and Queen Duty, Because according to the laws of nature, he had entered a body made by the king and queen. So this is what every uh, child is made of, from the body of their mother and father. Actually, Prabhupada says, however, he was not their son. The living being is the son of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. He's Krishna's son. And because he wants to enjoy this world, the Supreme Lord gives him a chance to enter various bodies. That's how come we're here. We wanted to enjoy something. And we were born into a particular family. And some people are born into very wealthy families, and some people are born into very difficult families, where there's a lot of conflict at home, and there's dissent, and they want to get out of their house, and they're not happy, and they think, why is this happening to me? But here the Bhagavatam is saying, it's actually a continuity. It's a continuity that is taking place. The living entity has no true relationship with the material body he gets from his father and mother. No eternal relationship. He is part and parcel of the Supreme Lord, but he is allowed to go through different bodies. He's been given this permission. The body created by the so-called father and the so-called mother actually has nothing to do with its so-called creators. That means that the body has been created, here's the baby, here's the child, actually has nothing to do with the persons who have created them. Now this also arises questions. What about my children? I thought they were my children. If they're not my children, why am I taking care of them? They're kind of sometimes hard to take care of. Why am I taking care of them? Therefore, the living entity flatly denied that Maharaj Chitraketu and his wife were his father and mother. He denied it. They may be my father and mother now, but I've had so many. So, when we hear these things, if we're listening carefully, they make us feel a bit detached. And when we feel a bit detached, what happens? Honestly, what happens when you feel a bit detached? What happens? Yes. Don't want to go after that. You don't want to go after that. What else? Yes. Anyone else? Become sober. Become sober. Sober. You become sober. Yes. Good. Good answers. Anything <coughs> else happens? Yes. Reduces your anxiety. It reduces your anxiety. Anything else? It leads to more austerity. Austerity leads to more austerity. Austerity leads to austerity. So you were all saying things that were definitely correct, completely correct. But the thing that I notice myself is when I become detached, 
I also become a little cold. So if I become detached from my children, I also become a little bit not so warm towards them because I become detached. Is that what we're after? No. Why not? You get a very positive no. What is what is it that we are after? We're after love. Thank you. We're after love. So that means that detachment is not the whole thing. It's part of the formula. To become a little detached, it gives you, what did you say? It gives you peace? Yes. Yes? It gives you over here, what did we say? Was it you, Jim? Somebody said, become sober. So becoming sober is not so bad. And peace is not so bad, but we want to make sure that that isn't the end result. I'm peaceful now, I'm sober now, it's all over. It's not. Because we have to develop an attachment and affection and happiness coming from our sense of relationship with Krishna. And only this this idea that this child belongs to Krishna, not to me, if it only develops detachment, it won't work in the way that we want it to. But if I, for example, one of you said to me, can you mind my child for 10 minutes or half an hour, I have to go and do something. And it was a particularly good friend of mine, and even if the child was a little naughty and playful, I'd be thinking, this is Mataji's child, so I have to take care of this child. I can't tell the child to go away. It's somebody else's child. So a person who has that attachment, but also has that sense that this child, like this child of Chitraketu, he belongs to the Supreme Lord, he's his son. Then a deeper understanding of how to take care comes about a deeper understanding of what is mine, what is not mine, and why should I take care of it better when it's not mine? Of course, if somebody who we don't know hands us a very difficult child and runs away irresponsibly and says, you take care of it, he's my child, it could be your child now, we would think, no, that's not reasonable. But that's not the situation with us. Our situation is that Prabhupada is telling us, Bhagavatam is telling us, that you can give up your, your attachment to mine, it's mine, my sticks, my house, my family, only properly when you understand that they belong to Krishna and that we should take care of them on his behalf. I know we've all heard that, but it's still something that we need to hear regularly. Now here's another interesting point that I found when I was preparing for this class. This is about Maya, because we're after all talking about Maya or this illusion, the illusion that makes us believe that this is mine, this is mine, I am this, that illusory sense, where does it come from? So that illusion is given to us so that we can forget 
that it belongs to Krishna and we can possess things for ourselves. But if we don't want to do that, then that illusory power, it works differently. So the instruction that is given is that if the jiva, it's ourselves, constantly describes maya, material energy, in relationship to the Lord, in the same way as the baby belongs to that other person, and I'm happily taking care of them because I love that person and I love this child. We don't become repugnant to the world. We just want to cut it off and have nothing to do with it. But we see it in relationship to the person to whom it belongs. If the Jiva constantly describes Maya in relationship to the Lord, if they remember Maya, we're usually told to forget Maya, but if you remember Maya or hear about Maya with proper faith in relationship to the Lord, then such a person will not become bewildered by Maya. Now I'm going to read to you that to you again because when I found this, it was very eye-opening to me. How can we live in the world? How can we not, as, as the Bhagavatam is saying, how can we retire from material programs destined to enhance the quality of one's illusion? How can we follow that instruction and still have constructive, valuable roles in society in general? How can we do it? It seems like it's either or. So listen carefully. If the jiva constantly describes maya in relationship to the Lord, remembers maya, or hears about maya with proper faith. So here we're saying, if you see the material world in relationship to the Lord, you remember when you see matter, that that belongs to Krishna, and you hear about the world in this, with these ears, you will not become bewildered by Maya. Which means you will not try to take something that isn't yours for yourself and try to enjoy it. So that question, how do we know, how do we know this way or that way, that we've got so interestingly interesting question. How do we know when it's something that's important for our service and or it's something just for me? If I try to develop the idea that it all belongs to actually to Krishna. And I'm not perfect. It's not like I'm going to be able to always discern exactly what is what. But my overall general mood that I'm cultivating is one of trying to serve. I'm trying to learn how to serve. I'm trying to understand that these things don't ultimately belong to me. I'm trying to develop that faith. If I'm trying to do that, to the degree I'm trying to do that, I'll gradually be given from within guidance and intelligence that will help me to discern, go left, go right, take this, don't do that, and so on. And it's that inner guidance that we desperately need. Because when it really comes down to it, uh, everyone is on their own path. And everyone has their own challenges. And we can share with each other and we must 
as devotees do that. At the final point, however, is this inner guidance that is going to take us through the doors of death and onwards into Krishna's service. So therefore, this is what we need more than anything else. So when we come to the temple, go and stand in front of the deities for a long time. Stand there until you can find a prayer. After your mind has wandered everywhere it likes to go, stand there until you can find some words to say, conscious words to say to the deities about what you need. And don't be saying, you know, I need a new car. <laughs> and I need a new phone. The latest iPhone isn't in my possession yet. Try to inhibit those prayers and ask for this guidance. How can I come to the point of understanding that I belong to you and so does everything else? And then how can I implement such a, an understanding into my day-to-day -day life as I proceed forward? to the best of my ability, because I'm far from perfect, and I'm going to make innumerable mistakes, and I know that you're going to be there to help me every single time. And so I'm coming to develop the habit of coming to you with everything. Please, um, please help me to receive your, your blessings and, and understand that you've given them to me. A lot of times people say to me, I was so lucky, such and such and such a thing happened. And I always think, you aren't lucky. Somebody did that for you. Somebody gave you that. If you can see that, that somebody's giving me, and somebody's with me through all the most difficult moments of my life, this is what will allow you to become detached from the idea of this is mine, and this is me. So that beggar on the train, counting his sticks with nothing, has come today to share with us a very important lesson so that we can make advancement in our own spiritual journeys. So if anyone has any questions, I'd be very happy to try and answer them. Yes. When, when we hear this story, uh, when we are seeing the beggar, it's easy to understand beggar is doing unnecessary things. But we are also beggars in yes. another way. Yes. And when we are beggars, we don't see that as a problem. We don't see that we're doing unnecessary things. Yes. And so, how do we keep that perspective? always in front that most of the activities are like beggars and unnecessary and keep on working on that so that the detachment keeps on building up and not form into beggars position. That's a very, very good question. Thank you. Well, I think that Chilpalpad was concerned for us uh, when we came to the West. At that time, even in India, nobody was very interested in Bhagavad Dharma. So when he came to the West, he was facing a new culture who had no understanding of anything, 
It's almost like he'd gone to a barbarian place. So he came and he created a structure for us that he wanted us to follow, which included the, the application of chanting in the morning as far as possible, and also hearing from the Srimad Bhagavatam, because he described that this book, it's in, in this age, it's so dark and so confusing. This book is like, the Bhagavatam says, it's like a light, you hold up a light, and you can see in the darkness. So he brought this with him. He didn't bring the volumes with him, but he brought everything in his heart. And then he worked it tirelessly to get everything into a form that we could take advantage of. So this always has to be the first port of call, the, the japa, chanting, and reading the Bhagavatam. And it doesn't work overnight, and it's not, uh, it's not that we read one time and everything is illuminated and the job is done. It's, it, it's a repetition has to be there, because, as, as I was explaining, we have to create new habits. We have habitual ways of thinking that this is mine, this is me. It's very deep. It's the very first thing that's created when the material world is created, is this sense of ahankar and mamata, I and mine. Because we, being spiritual, if we, if we didn't have that, we wouldn't be able to function here. We have to have a sense of identification. So that sense of identification, we gradually, gradually, gradually shifted by making offerings. We offer something that we think is ours, we offer it. It can be in the form of time, it can be in the form of words, it can be in the form of money, it can be in the form of service. But this is what Srila Prabhupada came to say. I'm creating this beautiful temple, and I think all of you must have had a really hard time when COVID came and we couldn't come to the temple. It was like unbelievable that the devotees of Radha couldn't enter the temple. Because the temple is such a central place, particularly in Melbourne, more than many places that I've been, that the temple is at the heart of the community. And so he did this so that we have this opportunity to come before the deities, to ask these questions of them. How do I know this? How do I know that? And, and I will say that if you ask a question of the deities and something happens just after that that's, that's helpful, you should relate it back and say, thank you, rather than saying, just by chance, somebody walked in the door and they said this, it was amazing. We should relate it back into that process. And, and, and very gradually, but the more we, we apply, the, the quicker, we'll find ourselves shifting from one way that we think to another way that we think now. And another thing is too, that's very, very important, uh, I have a quote which I'll read in the coming days that Prabhupada spoke about how the Indian community should set up Krishna conscious uh, centers and they should go around the world and they should give to the people. It doesn't mean just the Indian people. It means to the people people, the people out there who are uh, struggling with life in, its own, in their own ways. 
We're not here just to be a community and have a nice time. We're not here to sit in a circle all looking inwards at each other and going, hi. You know, we're supposed to turn around the other way and look out towards the world. So we'll speak about this more in the coming days. Thank you. Any other questions? Very good question. Yes. I was thinking the part of my training is that to understand the difference between math and spirit. Maybe doing like a math and spirit training to understand our body and spiritual. So I think you understand that. But it's not going to be a violence. So it's not going to be some of the rules that we can Are you saying that um, it's easy to understand theoretically the difference between material and spiritual? Yeah. But it's hard to apply it? It's hard to understand it in application. Yes, because sometimes when somebody does something that hurts us, yes. it's very hard to be forgiving. Yes. So we can say that that's just the person's conditioning. Yes. Yeah. So when, when somebody does something to hurt us, uh, our mind becomes disturbed, and we feel like um, uh, we feel like whatever our mind is thinking is reality. Yes. And for some time we get very angry at that person or we feel very sorry for ourselves. Yes? Yes. And then after some time we get over it and forget about it. I feel none of that was spiritual. <laughs> Not in any part of that was spiritual. It was just mental. <laughs> so usually we're thinking, where's the spiritual? It's not there. Now, the spiritual is of another dimension. So our struggle is to get beyond the mental, to, to understand the spiritual. And so the, the struggle is, um, <coughs> we, we gain strength for our struggle by coming to the Bhagavatam. However, when the mental is going on, that's the last place we want to go. And we don't want to pick up the Bhagavatam. It seems irrelevant. This is the problem. This, this, that, that. This, this, that, that. Right? So everyone had that experience? We don't, we don't find an answer there because we're not thinking spiritual, we're thinking material. So the spiritual is, is out of range at that time. So the first thing is that it calm down the material, the mental a little. Uh, it's not so flared up. Then you go and you look at the, the, the words of the Bhagavatam, Bhagavad Gita, talk to somebody who shares those concepts with you and then you can absorb them very nicely. So sometimes you have to have a flare-up of material uh, disturbance prior to actually being open and receptive to, to taking in something that's more internal, beyond the mind, beyond the body and its inconveniences. Does that make sense? Okay. Any more? Can you tell us something about that? This is my own personal experience. Okay. This, uh, the last two, three years I'm experiencing deep economical, uh, financial and emotional turbulences. Yeah. And that has taken me closer to Krishna. I can talk something about it in private. Yes, I understand, of course. So you've experienced um, difficulty in so many different parts of your life. 
and it has caused you to go deeper into your dependence on Krishna to protect you from the challenges that have come your way. Anyone else can, can vouch for that, if they've had that experience also? I know you have. <laughs> that's a, that's a, a very important point. But you know, I think it only works with somebody who's already quite sincere. Because somebody else can have challenges in their life and they go the opposite way. They say, I don't think this works. Look, I've become a devotee, I've done all the right things and nothing has gone my way. So I think it says something for your sincerity also that, it, that it's taken you in that direction. We don't ask for those things, we don't wish for them our family or friends or anyone. But we begin to realize that they're there in the world around us, and sometimes they're also there for us as well. Is that correct? Any other comments? That's where the hitch comes to my mind that if I try to become a, what I hear that Krishna takes away all the person of sincere devotees and makes them destitute. And that's where I get uh, scared uh, that, oh, what if that happened to me? So that is, that also uh, discourages me from becoming a sincere devotee of Lord. <laughs> that's why Yudhisthi Maharaj, he wanted to get a lot of wealth to show the world that that's not the only formula that Krishna uses. <laughs> because everyone's afraid. I go to Balshiva instead. Because yeah. they say, please give me all these things. And they, whoop, they appear, and so they say, this is a much better palm. Um, so yes, that's part of it, that he takes things away. But it's not the whole formula. And it's not that he makes people destitute uh, intentionally. He goes around looking, uh, where's Krishna does to make him destitute? <laughs> you see, the, the, the thing that, that's sort of like, the part that we don't fully take responsibility for is that the, the problems that we face come about from the choices we've made to stay in the material world, full stop. The things that we're suffering from, we've already heard about them. The Bhagavatam is saying, it's a miserable place, this will happen, that will happen, but it's not happening. So we can say, yes, 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 and then boom, some misery comes. And we're like, this is really miserable. <laughs> and, and then it can make us wiser because we realize, oh, this is actually true. There's two chapters in the Bhagavatam that describe, one describes the forest of material enjoyment. And it's so miserable. <laughs> it's like horrible. Jan Bharat speaks about it, Kapiladev speaks about it. They tell you that this is a very dangerous place. But we don't feel that, neither do we want to feel that. So it's not necessary that Krishna is taking everything away and everything was good and now he's, spoil he's spoiling our, our, our life. He's trying to take away the things that are causing us pain. He's taking away the things that we actually don't need. He's not taking away your life. He's giving you life. But he's taking away the other things. And because we treasure them and hold on to them, we feel like, oh, oh I'm going to die. But it's not a fact. So when you examine that fear, you might find that you can overcome it a little bit and become a little more trusting of Krishna's 
uh, statement. Why does he say that? What does he mean? Mm -hmm. No more questions? Yes, Prabhu. Uh, what we are saying is in the classes. From Bhagavatam we learned A, B, C, D. A means station, B means Shila Prabhupada books, C means chanting, C means devotional service, and T means eating prasadam. Now, Sadhu, say to the back, you have to go out. <laughs> there you have it, all there. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. So I think I should let you go because we're a little over time. But thank you for being such a nice, receptive listener. And I hope to see you all.